Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, we'll be looking at this morning the first five verses. If you remember, maybe some of you will remember, the American television anthology series by Rod Serling called Twilight Zone. Um, I've often enjoyed those programs because they kind of launch you into the unknown. And that was, the, that was the real twist of it. Rod Serling would, would step before the camera, inform everyone watching the program that it will be a different kind of experience because it explores the unfamiliar, the mysterious, and the unusual. He would say, with a key, we unlock the door to imagination. Beyond is another dimension. Dimension of sight, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You are moving through a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Guiding you through this wondrous jade is the hypnotic sound of the Twilight Zone. See, it goes beyond the unknown. Each episode was mixed, a mixture of self-contained fantasies, science fiction, suspense, and sometimes horror, and it would always end in some unexpected twist. The term Twilight Zone, which actually predates the program, originally meant gray area. Rod Serling himself chose the title of the series, but said only after he started the series that he, became, he, he discovered that Twilight Zone was a term applied by the U.S. Air Force to the Terminator, which meant the border between night and day on a planetary body. It's that shadowy area. Now, the passage before us today on this Lord's Day is a kind of passage that moves us to look heavenward away from the earthly, away from the temporary, away from the passing things that belong to the realm of copy and shadow. It prompts us to stick our heads above the clouds and remove ourselves from the thinking of the dizzying schedules all of us must adhere to. pushes us to step into the realm of the impossible, the realm of the invisible, a realm in which we often don't think about. Yet it is a realm more real than that which is seen. Believers from time to time are pushed by Scripture to look behind the curtain, to gaze upon reality, and to think about the wonders of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished in behalf of His children. It's the Scripture, like in John 1.12, where it says, But as many as received Him, To them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. Now we come to Hebrews chapter 8. And we come to what is called the kephalonen. You say, what's that? Well, it's actually a Greek word found in verse number 1. That means main point or chief point. 
or the principal thing. Look what it says in verse 1. Now the main point in which has been said is this. Isn't it great? Isn't it great when an author actually clearly tells us this is the main point? You don't always get that. But we get it here because he's stressing everything he said from chapter 1 all the way to chapter set, the end of chapter 7, and he's going to stress this main point, this principal thing. So that means it becomes very important, very serious for us as believers. What is the main point? Look what it says. The main point is we have such a high priest. That's part of the main point. But let me just stop there. We have such a high priest. We have the verb here. See, to those who believe in his name, we have been given the right to become the children of God. We have such a high priest. Putting the adjective such after the verb have conveys a grateful confidence for the followers of the way that they have an infinite, superior, high priest whose position in the heavenly sanctuary is in perfect order and secures for them their adoption forever. It's always my prayer, always my prayer, that you will fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ over and over again. That you'll come to worship Him and serve Him for the right reasons. And you'll want to consistently and soberly love Him more. Let me plead with you before I even get started is that if you don't really know the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that you will come and be saved. That you would be led to faith and repentance by the Spirit so that you will follow Him all the days of your life. It's my prayer. And if you do know Him, then you would discover afresh the supremacy of Christ. How beautiful He is, how exalted He is, how worthy He is to serve, to live for, to think about. And if you do come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior through the preaching of God's Word, please let someone know about it so we can rejoice with you together. See, our author this morning is not speculating. He is not fantasizing. He is not dreaming. But he is speaking of fact, not theory. See, Christians deal with real things, factual things, because they come from the living God who's a God of truth. He doesn't play with us. He shoots from the hip. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, is real, and the Bible is saying he's ours. He's yours. He's your own. You have him. So there's three things this morning about our Lord's position as a high priest I don't want you to miss. His Heminence, his service, and his reality. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you this morning for the great things you have done. We give you glory and honor. It's all do your name anyway. So Lord, let us enjoy who you are and what you've done. And Lord, this morning, cause us and push us to see What's happening in the heavenly sanctuary that is beyond this world. But it is true, more true than the things we can see. 
And so, Lord, let us live there and put our treasure there and put our mind there that you may bless us while we're here with these heavenly thoughts. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So our first major point is our great high priest has a position of eminence. Look at verse number one of chapter eight. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Eminence is one of those words we don't hear much. It is used to refer to a high position. A rank of distinction or of supremacy. This is what our passage is saying about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says several things about him that I want to point out. The first one is he is seated. He is sitting down. Now, being seated is a topic when related to the high priestly ministry becomes worthy of consideration. And for this reason, for this reason... Jesus bore all the sins of his people in a single cosmic sacrifice, the word of God tells us. Ascended into heaven and then sat down. No Levitical priest ever sat down. In the earthly tabernacle, there were no chairs. And the reason for this was the Levitical priests, the reason why they had to stand, their work was never done. They were never complete. Man, tell me that's not frustrating. You know how you feel when you never, never really seem to complete anything. I don't know about you, but that frustrates me to no end. These guys, these priests... We're never done. I think this air conditioner is blowing hot air. So uh, I don't know if we can shut it off. To me, it seems like it. I don't know if it's to you, you know. But we'll just leave it for now. It needs to get hot once in a while anyway, doesn't it? See, he sat down. The reason why he sat down, it indicates here, and the main reason for Hebrews is that there doesn't need to be a further sacrifice. Jesus Christ, when he sacrificed, he ended it. It's done. Look it over to chapter 10 and verse 11 and 12. It says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, Hebrews 10, 11, which can never take away sin. See, here's the reason why their job was never done. Because the people always what? Sinned. It never ended. Over and over again. These guys were, it was an exhausting job. But look at verse 12. But having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. See, Jesus Christ had finished it all. So there doesn't need to be a further sacrifice. He's ended it. It's done. A second thing in Hebrews chapter 8, verse number 1, is that he's on a throne. It says, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. See, the right hand is a position of privilege. It's a position of authority. And it also signifies might, majesty, and deity. See, to be on a throne or the throne, definite article here, the throne, the final ultimate throne that governs the whole universe, this is where Jesus sits. It it attributes to him that he is the king of all. These two two things are actually brought together in a passage of Scripture in Revelation. Let's turn there just for a minute, just to get a sense. Remember, Jesus ascends and goes back to heaven. What happens when Jesus goes back to heaven? He came from heaven, came to the earth, and he's going back after he's done his work and accomplished his mission on the earth. What happens there? Well, look at chapter 4 of revelation 2 just to get a sense where seating being seated and on the throne come together and it says this in chapter 4 verse 2 immediately 
I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. And one sitting on the throne, he was he who was sitting was like Jasper, a Jasper stone and a Sardis and a Sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There were seven flashes of lightning and sounds, sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like crystal in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying... Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and peace and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. And then look it over to chapter 5 of Revelation. It says, one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Chapter 5, verse 5. Behold, the lion... That is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the, and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This is a vision of heaven. See, the church in heaven knows who the mediator of the new covenant is. So one of the elders said, Stop, John, stop crying. The lamb is found worthy. Jesus Christ, the slain one, was found worthy to take the scroll from God the Father. Jesus is the central personage. He is able to break the seals and open the book. And then look at verse number 9 of chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Everything which is in heaven and earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and dominion forever, ever. And then verse 14, here's the conclusion of all that. For the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down, and what do they do? Worship. All you can do is worship when it comes to understanding who Jesus Christ is and what he has accomplished and in his return back to heaven, what a great feast it was. What a tremendous time of worship it was. See, he is seated, he is on the throne, and then verse number one of chapter eight, he's on the match. It says of the majesty in the heavens. That once Jesus accomplished his mission, it was his prayer to go back to heaven to be with the Father. Where in John 17, 5, it says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The heavens here refers to the place of God's glorious residence, the holy habitation of God. It's the resting place of all blessed souls it is where his throne is and where thousands of his holy ones stand before him serving him see so jesus position in heaven makes his ministry superior to the earthly 
and earthbound priesthood of the old covenant. That was the point here. He has gone where no high priest has gone before. All that has gone before him concerning the function of the high priest were just shadows, were just types of what would be accomplished in Jesus Christ. So, see, believers are dealing with reality. You're dealing with things more real than anyone on the earth. See, our great high priest, he has definitely a position of eminence. But secondly, I want you to notice the second major point is that our great high priest has a position of service. Look at verse number two. It says, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, saying this about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is serving in heaven. Yes, he is seated. And sometimes people think that because he's seated, the work is done, he's not doing anything. But that's not the case here. It's saying right here, a minister in the sanctuary. He is seated, but he has a, he is the priest king. He is still serving Who's he serving? No, he's, he's serving. He's serving us. The Lord's seated in heaven and he's serving us. Where is he serving? He's serving in the true tabernacle, the Bible says. One that the Lord pitched, not man. This is not a tabernacle pitched by man. This is the one the Lord actually pitched. This is the original one. This is the real one. This is the true one. But I'll remind you that it's not true as opposed to false because the earthly tabernacle was not a false one. God himself commanded Moses that it be built. This is just the heavenly sanctuary which is abiding as compared to the earthly sanctuary which is transient and passing away. See, the Lord is serving And he's doing something else here in Scripture. He is offering a sacrifice. But in reality, he has offered the sacrifice because if he's going to be a priest, one of the responsibilities of a priest were they were to offer sacrifices, like it said in verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice. So it's necessary that this high priest, Jesus Christ, also have something to offer well what did he offer he offered himself he offered himself hebrews seven twenty seven. it says in the last part because this he did once for all when he offered up himself so it is the unrepeatable, perfect, effective sacrifice of himself. He offers it up for who? For us, for the church, for his children. So he is serving in heaven his children. He has now offered up a sacrifice like no other sacrifice because he doesn't have to offer one for himself first because of his sin. He was sinless, but he offers a sacrifice not of another animal or another person but himself on the cross one time for all eternity for a reason so we can be saved by faith so the law can convict us of sin and bring us to the place of faith and we need to do then is believe that god gives us at that point faith and repentance he regenerates us so we can believe the things that he's already accomplished. But there's something else in this position of service that he's doing. He's showing us his difference. Look at verse number four. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. 
since there are those who offered the gifts according to the law. See, he didn't belong to the family of Aaron. He didn't belong to the line of Levites. It's a good thing, too. It's a good thing Jesus wasn't in that line because their ministry was ineffective. It was only limited. It was unable to bring God's purpose to completion. It was unable to do that. But Jesus, Jesus' heavenly high priesthood demands a perfect sacrifice which he offered. He offered it once for all and brings God's purpose to completion. And what's that purpose? This is the purpose. Admission to the sanctuary of God. That's the purpose. Because when one believes in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ becomes their righteousness, He transfers his righteousness to them. He transfers their sin to the cross. He makes them perfect. So they can enter, ultimately, the heavenly sanctuary. So they can go and be with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and dwell with them forever. No high priest was able to accomplish that. Only Jesus does. And he does it, all the work of God, for us. Now, doesn't this display a, a level of love that we're, it's hard to understand? How much God deeply loved his children. To go to this extent to secure your salvation. To secure your eternity. And that no one could snatch you from his hands once you are his. No, one other thing that's interesting, a little historical footnote. It says in verse number four, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, meaning this, that when Hebrews was written, the sacrifices were still going on. That means it was before 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. And most solid historians placed Hebrews at about 67 to 68 AD. So this becomes a a reality for the people. And remember, Hebrews being written to the Jews, they were still seeing the priests take the sacrifices and offer it there in Jerusalem. They were still seeing that. It was still fresh in their mind. So now for that to end was a huge problem to them. It was a huge problem. You mean we don't have to sacrifice anymore? I don't get it. I can't handle that in my mind. That's why he drives home the point over and over about the new covenant, which we're going to get to, that Jesus Christ is the one who satisfies all of that. Don't think, don't just keep looking at the shadows. Don't just keep looking at the outline of things. Look to heaven where you see the reality of what you see down here. And all that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, what else is Jesus doing in heaven in his high priestly priestly service? Well, I threw out some things to you before, but I just want to remind you of them. This is what else he's doing. Of course, he's a king, so he's reigning and he's ruling. And the Bible does tell us that all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he is ruling, he's reigning, Second thing he's doing is he's calling people to himself. The gospel is still being preached as the Lord sits at the right hand of the Father right now making intercession for the saints. He's with us as we go and proclaim the gospel. Another thing he's doing is he's interceding for his people. I like the passage in Romans 8 where it says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. There's that word again. He's done it for us. 
But there's something else he's doing that I didn't mention before. It's this. He's waiting. He's waiting. Look at Hebrews 10, chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. He says this. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, and notice verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. So what is he doing? He's waiting. This heaven the Lord Jesus entered into. There he sits. At the right hand of the majesty on high. And he must remain there until the time comes for God to restore all things. That Jesus Christ will come back to earth. He will come as a king the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he will come riding the clouds of heaven, surrounded by an innumerable host of holy angels and the redeemed saints. And why is he coming? He's coming to restore all things. Summing up all things in Christ, as it says in Ephesians, things in heaven and things on earth. See, whenever... We, have, we encounter the hostile forces of the universe, they will all be subdued someday. His work of cosmic meditation and, inter- and intercession will be complete someday. And then when that is complete, you know what he's going to do? He's going to offer up everything to the Father. And then the Bible says, and God will be all in all. That's the end. That's the end of, of actually redemptive history as we know it well look what does it say that in scripture look at first corinthians chapter 15 we'll come back here first corinthians 15 this is where he tells us there in verse 24 i think this is a to unpack a passage like this is is an incredible thing for your mind to wrestle with but it says this in verse 24 of first corinthians 15 where he, he writes then comes the end When he hands over the kingdom to God, the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected to put all things in subjective in subjection to him, in verse 28, when all things are subject to him, then the Son himself also will be subject to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. See, the Father is giving it to the Son. When it's all done, the Son gives it back to the Father and the whole thing is done. So see, the Lord stays there, seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of majesty and honor and power. And he's doing all those things. He's reigning, he's ruling, he's calling, he's interceding, and he's waiting for it all to take place. And he's in charge of it all. Aren't you thankful he's in charge of it all? So, brethren, it doesn't matter what the governments of the world do. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change God's plan a bit. If the United States goes south tomorrow doesn't change God's plan. It's going to change your life. doesn't change his plan. Do you believe that? think we can handle it if that happens? It sure looks like someday it could. And believe me, I'm a staunch believer that we ought to do everything to preserve our country and to pray for our country and to put the right leaders in there in office if we can. But someday... Our nation may go the way of many nations before. That's been established with much firmer foundation and for a longer period of time. And they, when God says you're done, you're done. Doesn't matter how strong your army is. Doesn't matter how well established you are. It doesn't matter any of those things. When God says a nation's done, a nation's done. But see, it doesn't change his plan. His eternal plan will come to the end someday. He's looking forward to it. We ought to look forward to it too, but we have 
to keep our eyes in heaven while we serve here on earth, or we're going to miss it. And that brings me to my last and third major point in verse number five, that our great high priest has a position of reality. It's hard for me to try to title that, but I, that's where I landed. It's the reality of God, because what God tells us is real. This is, it's, not, it's not a shadow. It's not a fantasy. It's not a, it's not a good story that has nothing, you know, it's leading nowhere. It's reality. And I can get my hands around reality. I can get my mind around reality. And that's where it begins to tell us. Well, let me back up for a minute. Back in Exodus chapter 25, verse number 40, God told Moses this. Listen, Moses, I'm going to give you a pattern of the tabernacle. And I want you to make the tabernacle. Now, if you ever read through the Old Testament, you know when you get to the section on the tabernacle? It goes on and on and on and on. You say, Lord, all right, I I get the picture here. I mean, every single detail is written down. What metal is supposed to be used? The dimensions, the height, you know, the silver, the gold, the bronze, the laver, the candlesticks, the all the, you know, the cloth, every, the priesthood, what they're supposed to wear, every single detail. And you say, whoa. Now, it's, it's interesting to read. But you a- have to ask, why did God give such detail? Well, it really becomes a reality in this passage of Scripture. This is the reason why Moses was shown by God the real pattern of which is in heaven. But the pattern which the priest had here on earth was only a shadowy outline of the heavenly order. So the writer of Hebrews brings together two Greek words, and I'll I'll get to where I'm going on this. Look at verse number five, what he says. Who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And then he says, just as Moses was warned by God. What was he warned when he was about to erect the tabernacle? For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So we see now that when Moses was on the mountain and the people were wondering what's taking the guy so long to come down, he was gazing into heavenly things. And God gave him the pattern of the real heavenly sanctuary to bring down here to earth to show what men need to do to approach God in a proper way so they wouldn't be killed and, be, and perish and die and be separated from God for eternity. So he warned Moses, don't you dare fudge on this. And we, I think we should take the same advice that when it comes to the Word of God, let us not fudge on the Word of God. Let us preach what's there in the text let us live what's there in the text and not skip over anything that's there, no matter how, how hard it is to take sometimes. We should never, ever go there. We're warned the same way. But there's two words that he uses in verse number five, who served a copy and a shadow. The word copy can mean representation or figure or copy is a good word. We understand that. But he uses another word, and it's the word shadow. It's a little bit harder to define shadow. Some people say, well, it's a reflection of of something that was real or it's a silhouette of something that was real. I think the best way to describe it and probably the one word that is uh, this word is defined in this way. It was a sketch plan or outline of what was real. That when we look at the Old Testament tabernacle and we read those Old Testament texts, we see only the shadow, the outline the sketch plan of what's really in heaven. The point being, the earthly priesthood, because it was only a sketch plan representing the real of that which was in heaven and was inadequate because it was only a shadowy outline of the real priesthood, or the real priest, Jesus Christ. These could never lead people into the reality of God's heavenly sanctuary. 
They could never lead people into the presence of God. But the point is, Jesus, our high priest, surely can and did. And anybody even now who is without Christ, when they come and believe, they too can have that entryway into his presence here on earth and then also guaranteed it in heaven. See, it is he, Jesus Christ, who leads us right into the presence of God. Who else could do that? What other priest even came close to doing it? Nobody comes close to Christ. That's why he wasn't in the line of Levi or Aaron. He was from the line, the tribe of Judah, right? Because he was called by God from heaven. And the sanctuary that even was a pattern on earth was only a picture of what was in heaven. It was always God's plan to do what he did. It was always God's plan to set aside the old things he did and replace it with the reality. It was always his plan to do that. See, when you're going through Hebrews, you wonder why. You know, chapter 11, everybody knows that chapter. Chapter 11 is known as what? The chapter of what? Faith, right? It's a great chapter of faith. But you say, well, why that chapter? You know why? Because while we're here, and we're thinking about the reality, we have to have faith to believe it, right? We have to have faith to believe it. Why? Because we're dealing with things that are way beyond us. Things that, if they come from God, we have to trust the character of God. We have to trust God. That's what faith is. So see, when we get there, we may gain a greater understanding why we need faith while we're on earth. It is faith that believes the God who does the impossible, right? With these things, with men, it is impossible. With with God, all things are possible, right? So we believe God. We believe the God of the impossible, who is not bound, restricted by time or space as we know it. Who knows how many dimensions there are? We know there's more than what we can actually fathom. We know that. The math tells us that. But how do we get there? How do we go to where God dwells? We can't get there on our own. God didn't leave us directions. He didn't leave us a map to get there. He just simply said this, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. You want to go to the Father, you've got to come through me. And I'll take you there. Matter of fact, when I'm there, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He says, if if this wasn't true, I wouldn't have told you. It's true. But sometimes, see, it takes faith to believe that. When you're going through suffering and trials and temptations and life gets tough. These are the things that get you through. Thinking by faith. Just turn over to chapter 11 real quick of Hebrews. Look at the first three verses where he says this. Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 2, for by it the men of old gained approval. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Explain that one to me. Is it true? Or is it not true? Is it fantasy? Or is it reality? See, the only way we can say it's reality is if I believe the one who said it. The one who said it, the one who has the character behind what's being said, what's being taught. Because I can't really prove any some of these things. That, that things are made are, are made out of things that we can't see. That God framed the worlds out of nothing? Come on. It's true. Because God's true. Because God tells us the truth. Because he shoots from the hip. That's what increases my faith. See, my faith is in him. Not in things, not in people, not in nations, not in armies. It's in him. I like when I'm reading through the Old Testament where God's people said, we're going to depend on Egypt and their armies because their armies are strong and they have strong horses and big chariots. 
And God says, you trust in those and not trust in me, you're going to be slaughtered and defeated and go into exile and all and slavery and all those things. All you have to do is simply trust me. Why? I'm greater than all that. I'm more powerful than all that. I'm the great God who sits in the heavens. But he's not so transcendent, he doesn't deal with us personally. He is imminent with us. He's close to us. He's telling us personal things here. He's letting us know what he's done for us. This is a benefit, benefit for you and I. But I tell you this, we're not called to find out what's going on in the unseen realm. I'm not saying that. We are called to trust the God whose character is of that truth. The God who is just. The God who is compassionate. The God who is loving and full of kindness. And the God who has wrath against sin. That is the God of the Word of God. And that's just to name a few. So you see, we simply need to trust God at His Word. Because He can be trusted. There are few people that we can trust to do hard things to keep secrets, to pay back what they owe. But God can be trusted completely and totally. And always, he doesn't change. He's not going to take a left turn on us and lose us. He's with us. He's calling to us. He's ministering to us. He's praying for us. He's given us his spirit as a down payment, sealed until the day of redemption. He's given us all those things. We are privileged beyond definition. But do we live that way? Why do we live like such paupers when we're actually children in the family of the king of the universe? You don't ever see the king of a nation's kid driving a beat-up car. If he does, he has 15 other cars that cost a lot more than that one. No, you, you see him you see him because he's he's got represent his the kingship of his father. He drives the best. He represents himself as a king's kid. He's he's born in the privilege and that's the way it is. And he has to re- represent that. What he doesn't, he does a disfavor to his father. See, we're king's kids. Let's live like it. And part of that is really being a person of faith, trusting God. Believing in God's word. Proclaiming the word of God to those who don't know it yet. So you can simply trust God at his word. In fact, we can trust God with our eternal souls. We can trust God in our daily lives. We ought to trust God in all those things. So just to sum up this section of scripture, Jesus sacrifice was finished so he sat down in the heavenly sanctuary jesus sacrifice was accepted so he is enthroned in the place of power in the heavenly sanctuary and jesus sacrifice was efficacious so he in reality fulfills and puts away forever all copies and shadows that represented the heavenly sanctuary and the work that Christ would do on the earth forever. He finished it. So therefore, our high priest, Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens into God's presence and has broken down all the obstacles that could hinder a sinful human being from coming to God through Jesus Christ and finally go into God's perfect presence, now welcomes you to come. If you don't come, then the end of the story is inevitable. You'll be separated from God forever in a place called hell. If you do come, then you'll realize all these blessings are yours no matter how much you sinned, no matter how long you sinned, no matter what degree you sinned. So God... For his children, all this is for us. 
It's no time to sit on the bench for God's people. It's no time to be, it's no time for caution. It's, it's no time to be a coward. It is time to be a fearless witness. It is time to serve God and not play games. It is a time to worship God in sincerity and truth. It's time right now where you're at, whatever you're doing in this time God's given you on this earth, it's time to serve him and worship him because he's done all these things for us. And it's, it's surely time for you to be overwhelmingly thankful because you have to come to this conclusion, Lord, I deserve none of this. None of it. I never could have deserved what, what I'm reading here. But it's ours. It's ours. Because we are children of the King of Kings. Amen? Let's live like that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. Your word, Lord, is awesome. It's because you're awesome. And Lord, this morning I give you the praise that is due your name. To praise you for your great work that you've done on our behalf. I give you honor, Lord, because you are highly exalted. There is none like you, Lord. You create everything in heaven and in earth. You have authority over all things. And Lord, I give you glory. It's all due your name, Lord. You get all the credit. Thank you, Lord, that you included us in your plan. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can have truly forgiveness of sin because of this one-time eternal sacrifice by our high, our high priest, Jesus Christ. We give you praise for that. And now, Lord, I just ask you, Lord, if there's someone who doesn't know you, they'd come and they believe in you as their Lord and Savior. They stop fooling around. They would get the answers from the word of God. And I pray you're for your people, Lord. Please, Lord, keep them from worldly thinking. Keep them, Lord, from desiring things that are no benefit to the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to desire things that benefit godliness and walking with you and serving you with the power of the Spirit of God. And, Lord, for all of us, increase our faith. Let us look beyond what we see to the reality of things that you've already accomplished. And let us trust you more and more every day for the little things and the big things. And Lord, let us walk, become spiritual fathers and walk by faith because we know the one in whom we trust. We can trust his word. We can trust what he's done. And Lord, we can rest our heads on our pillows because of that. And Lord, whenever you decide to take us, from this earth, we know, Lord, death is only a doorway into your presence. And so, Lord, even for this, you have conquered our greatest enemy. You have subdued Satan and put him down, and he's awaiting judgment. So I pray, Lord, with the time you've given us, let us live it to the fullest, not for ourselves, but for you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.